Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'll be speaking to two scientists who are involved in making the scientific case for building the UK's first free electron laser. And we'll also learn about the physics of face masks from a scientist who's developed a new copper nanowire foam for use in masks. But first, I'm joined by my Physics World colleagues, Margaret Harris and Tammy Freeman, to talk about what's new this week in physics research. Hi, Tammy and Margaret. Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hamish. Margaret, you've brought a story about an ion clock, but this isn't any old ion clock sitting in a metrology lab. What's so special about this instrument? Well, what's special about it is that it's in space. It's in space right now. It has been flying around uh, orbiting the Earth since 2019. And I don't know about you, but when I think about atomic clocks or ion clocks, I think about the ones I've seen operating in standards labs like NIST and the National Physical Laboratory in the UK. And these things are big bulky things, and they rely on monitoring the so-called clock transitions in cold atoms that are confined by lasers and magnetic fields. And I guess I'd never really thought about the fact that the atomic clocks in space, the ones on the GPS-type satellites that rely on very precise timing to do that triangulation of signals that gives a GPS receiver its location. Those clocks are not like the ones you see in the lab at all. They're much simpler. They're based on atomic beams or gas cells, and they have to be simple because the clocks in standards labs, they tend to require at least some degree of tending by actual human scientists, you know, especially in the more advanced clocks that are more experimental. You know, the lasers go out of alignment, or they unlock, so they're not in the right frequency anymore, or something else in the myriad of things that can go wrong in a cold atom experiment goes wrong. But what that means is that, that because these space-based atomic clocks, the current generation of them, because they're quite simple in their construction, their long-term stability isn't as good as that you get with atomic clocks on Earth. Um, for example, the atoms in them run into the walls of the gas cells uh, that they're, they're confined in. And that means that the current generation of space-based atomic clocks needs to phone home regularly to check that the time is still accurate. The new clock, which was developed by researchers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uses trapped ions instead. Uh, and this technology has existed for a number of years here on Earth, but it's never been used in space before. And these trapped ions are held by magnetic fields away from the walls of the chamber that they're in. And that means they don't have these unwanted collisions that cause their recorded time to drift, or at least not nearly as much. Well, I'm with you, Margaret. I think it's amazing that, you know, these <laughs> atomic clocks are, uh, are are whizzing around above our head and, and, and of course, doing useful things uh, like GPS. So these researchers, they've built a better clock and, and they've put it into space. What's the history of this mission? Okay, so the mission itself is called the Deep Space Atomic Clock Mission, and it was approved by NASA back in 2011, and then launched, as I said, in, in June 2019. Uh, so the, the clock itself, and all its, its sort of the bits that come with it, is about the size of a microwave oven, which is not exactly miniature, but it's definitely small enough to put on top of a rocket and launch along with a bunch of other payloads. And that clock is now run for, um, I think it's nearly a year, and which is why developers are reporting on its results. And the results are really good, actually. After 23 days, they found that the clock had drifted by about four nanoseconds. Wow. Which, 
okay, it's not as good as the t as atomic clocks you see on the ground, but it's about an order of magnitude more stable than previous space-based atomic clocks. And and so, what's the benefit of having a a, a more stable clock um, on a satellite? I'm I'm guessing that you'd get better GPS for one thing. Um, are, are there other benefits? I think the main benefits actually aren't the, um, the better GPS, although I think you're right, you probably would get some advantages there. The big prize is that if your spacecraft doesn't need to phone home and check its timings with a ground-based clock as often, you can do more sophisticated navigation with it, especially in deep space, so beyond Earth's orbits. For example, a future spacecraft that was equipped with a clock like this one would need only a single communication link with ground controllers rather than the three links it currently required for the atomic clocks that are on the GPS satellites. And more stable clocks like this might also make you able to do some things that aren't currently possible. Um, so for example, it might make it possible to plot the gravitational field of Jupiter's moon Europa to see if it's got an ocean beneath its icy crust. But this is still early days yet. The clocks probably need to improve even more before we can do that. So, so some science and, and technology applications. You, you, you can read more about this out-of-the-world timekeeper in an article on the Physics World website by Edwin Cartledge. Just look for the headline, Trapped Ion Clock Passes Orbital Test. So Tammy, you, you have a story about a temporary cardiac pacemaker that provides treatment for limited time and then disappears. So, so first of all, Tammy, what, what, what is a pacemaker and why would someone want a temporary one? So cardiac pacemakers are small implantable electronic devices that are used to treat abnormal heart rhythms. Now, the temporary ones, which are designed to be used for a few days or a few weeks, there's a couple of reasons why you'd have these. So one is just um, for a patient that's waiting for a permanent pacemaker, or after heart surgery, it's common for patients to suffer from bradycardia, which is a slower, a slower than normal heart rate. Um, and this just happens for a while. So again, they'd need a temporary pacemaker. And so temporary devices are used at the moment. Um, are, are, are the ones that we have now, are, are there dangers involved with them? Well, typically a temporary pacing system will include an external generator with pacing leads that are inserted through the skin. Now this can cause problems with infection at the site of insertion, for example. And it also limits the patient's mobility as they have to be careful not to dislodge this external hardware. Um, the other problem with existing devices is that when the pacemaker is no longer needed, it has to be surgically removed. Uh, and this procedure in itself can risk damaging the heart tissue. And so how is this new pacemaker better? OK, so the research team um, headed up at Northwestern University and the George Washington University in the U.S., They've developed a fully bioresorbable cardiac pacemaker. It doesn't require batteries and operates without any external hardware and no leads going through the skin. And this design in itself makes it much less susceptible to causing infections. But even more impressively, the device, um, after completion of therapy, it totally dissolves in the body. So this eliminates this need for surgical removal. Wow, that's incredible. So how is this built? Well, what's it made out of? Okay, so firstly, to remove the need for batteries, um, the researchers used wireless energy transfer to deliver the power and the control commands to the pacemaker. 
So the device includes a power harvesting receiver that enables this wireless operation. Now the receiver, as well as the device's electrodes and, and the contact pads that attach to the heart, they're all made from materials that fully resorb through natural biological processes. So these materials include a polymer, polylactide co-glycolide, uh, which dissolves into glycolic and lactic acid. Um, another of the materials used is tungsten coated magnesium, which degrades into non-toxic products. So the final device is just 250 microns thick. Another advantage, the researchers note that, you know, these wireless battery-free pacemakers have been developed previously, but they were rigid and didn't conform to the soft tissue of the heart. This new device, it is, as it's so thin and it's flexible, it can match the heart's curved surface and adapt to its movements, which makes it much more suitable for potential transfer to use with patients. Where where are these researchers um, w with this pacemaker? Is is this something that's being strictly developed um, in the lab, or is it ready to be tested on humans? Okay, so so far the team have formed tests, um, various tests. So they first examined excised mouse and rabbit hearts and slices of human cardiac tissue and demonstrated successful pacing. They've also used the pacemaker to perform pacing in a dog during um, the animal's open chest surgery. Um, in another experiment, they implanted the pacemakers into rats and they performed daily trials. So they saw that the devices worked successfully for four days after implantation. And then the performance started to degrade as the device started to dissolve. Uh, to track this process, they took X-ray images and they saw that the pacemaker maintained its shape and its contact with the heart for a week was mostly dissolved within three weeks and completely disappeared after 12 weeks. And actually, if you look at the article on the Physics World website, there's a really great video at the top which shows the pacemaker gradually dissolving. Now, importantly, these timescales can be tailored to meet specific clinical requirements. For example, um, coating the device with materials that have different rates of resorption. And so it sounds like a, a lot of work has been done on this already. Is it, is it ready to, to be tested on humans? One important finding so far was that, in the rats at least, the implantation and resorption of the pacemaker it didn't have any adverse health impacts. So yeah, the next step is to design devices for human patients. So the researchers are now planning to develop these temporary pacemakers for use with children with AV block, which is when the signal transmission from the atria to the ventricles in the heart is impaired. And this can happen after heart surgery. Um, and then the children need a temporary pacemaker. Um, the team's also de designing devices for adult patients who can also experience this temporary AV block after heart valve repair. So definitely one to keep an eye on. Well, that's great. That, that's really interesting, Tammy. And and. Uh, Tammy's article is on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Temporary Pacemaker Regulates Heart Rhythm, Then Completely Disappears. So Hamish, you wanted to talk about a high-resolution microscope that's made from Lego. Yeah, that's right. Um, two biophysicists, Timo Betz and Bart Voss, at uh, the University in, of Münster in Germany, have teamed up with Timo's 10-year-old son, Emil, 
to create a microscope almost entirely out of Lego building blocks. And I'm sure everybody out there knows what Lego is, but if you don't, these are uh, sort of small, colorful plastic blocks that you can put together and build a house or a car. But now you can build uh, a microscope. And the only non-Lego components in this microscope are the lenses, and they're made from spare parts for iPhone cameras, which apparently are, are relatively low cost. So now you, you can make a microscope out of Lego and a few mobile phone bits and bobs. Well, I'll have to go look and check and see if I've got mobile phone bits and bobs down the back of my sofa. Um, so, <laughs> Everybody does. <laughs> I certainly have Lego down the back of my sofa. Um, but okay, So this is really nice and it's really cute that he's done the work with his 10-year-old his son, but how good is this microscope really? I mean, how good is a microscope that's made out of Lego and iPhone parts? Well, I, I mean, I'm only going by the the, uh, the the news story on the Physics World website uh, and the paper that it reports on. But apparently this microscope can achieve a magnification of about 254 times. And I, I did a quick look on, on Amazon at, you know, sort of budget student microscopes. And that seems to be about on par with what a, a budget student microscope can deliver. And uh, apparently, um, it's, all, it's good enough to observe the motion of water fleas or the formation of tiny crystals as a salt solution evaporates. But I think the important thing here is that, um, at least according to its inventors, by building the microscope, People of all ages can develop an understanding of optics and microscopy. And, and I think this is a great way to teach students that scientific instruments are not always something that you buy off the shelf. You know, that part of the fun and challenge of being a scientist is building your own instruments. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, this will allow young people to see the creative side of science. Absolutely. So if I wanted to build one of these at home, are, th are there plans and instructions available? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Timo, Emil and Bart have published a paper describing the microscope, and they've also uh, made the plans available for anyone to download. You can find links to the paper and the plans and also read more about the microscope on the Physics World website. Just look for the story headlined High Resolution Microscope is made from Lego bricks. And that was written by Ben Skuse. I think, Amish, we've, we've got a, a bit of a Lego theme going on, on the website at the moment. Um, I understand that's not the only thing on the website about Lego right now. Yeah, that's right. I, I did a quick search and, and we've got a whopping 46 articles on the website about Lego. And um, anything from uh, plans to make a particle collider made of Lego. Now I should point out it's not a real particle collider. Oh, it collides uh, marbles. Uh -huh. okay. That's still pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I also found a prediction in 2013 by a physicist that by 2020, Lego people, that is the little figures, will outnumber real people uh, uh, on the planet. And I can sort of believe that because I can I remember when my children were young, um, we had lots of Lego in the house and we certainly had more Lego figures than people. Um, but I think, Mar Margaret, the thing you're thinking about is um, recently an entire episode of the Physics World Stories podcast um, was devoted 
to the topic of Lego. Um, that podcast is called Physics and Lego, an Enduring Love Affair. And you can find that on the website or at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks, Tammy and Margaret, for joining me. Sure thing. Thanks, Hamish. Next up, it's Margaret in conversation with a physicist who's developed a new nanomaterial for use in face masks. Like most people, I've spent a lot of time wearing a face mask recently. And that means, again, like most people, I've also spent a lot of time thinking about face masks. How do they work? What's the best kind to wear? And how are all these discarded masks affecting the environment? But however much time I've spent thinking about face masks, I can guarantee that our next guest has thought about them much, much more. Kai Liu is a physicist at Georgetown University in the US, and he has recently developed a new nanomaterial that works as a filter in face masks. Hi, Kai. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Margaret. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about this material you developed, and then we'll talk about face mask applications of it later. Sure. Uh, so the material we've developed is a nanoporous metal foam uh, that are very uh, lightweight. Uh, we started working on this uh, a little over a decade ago for a material science project. And roughly about five years ago, uh, by serendipity, my late colleague Tom Cahill and his wife, uh, Jeannie, made a generous donation uh, while I was still a faculty at the University of California, Davis. And their gift allow us to start exploring using novel materials to address environmental issues. And since our metal foam has had a very uh, high surface areas, and we figure that could be very useful potentially for air filtration. And that's how we started working on them. And uh, it turns out uh, this was a challenging problem because uh, in order to use them as a practical filters, they have to be able to sustain uh, practical airflows. Uh, so that took us actually a, a lot of work to make that happen. And fortunately, after my group moved over to Georgetown University in 2018, we got additional support from the Georgetown Environmental Initiative and also the McDevitt bequest to allow us to continue the work and bring that to fruition today. So uh, you mentioned there that, that uh, the material needs to have sort of normal air flows through it. Um, when we were talking over email, you talked that described the material as, you know, sort of efficient, breathable, robust, and cost-effective. Can you say a bit more about these things and how, why they're important for the, the project, the application you're thinking of, and also just how you make them happen? So obviously, uh, efficiency is the number one consideration for any face mask. But there are many other similarly important factors. And so for us, in order to have uh, the high filtration efficiency, we have to optimize the microstructure. And so our foams are made of uh, metallic nanowires, and we assemble them uh, and turn them into a three-dimensional assembly. And it will, it's able to allow sufficient air to flow through it without uh, any impact on its uh, structural integrity. And so we actually developed a method to reinforce the structure without sacrificing the filtration performance. And breathability is one of the uh, important factors people consider. 
For example, if we just talk about efficiency, you can get a plastic bag. Uh, that's going to be 100% efficient, but it's useless because <laughs> it has zero breathability. So uh, in order to achieve both, we actually constructed this three-dimensional foam, which is mostly empty space. Uh, the metal part only consists of a few percent, up to 15% of the total foam. The rest of it is just empty space, so air can flow through it. So that allows us to achieve both uh, high efficiency and breathability. Uh, in our feasibility test, uh, we measure that the filtration efficiency is close to 100% for most of the 0.1 to 1.6 micron size range. And this is a particularly relevant for COVID-19, for example. Uh, we know airborne particulates, uh, particularly droplets and aerosols, they played a major role in the spreading of the disease. The larger droplets, like many microns and above, uh, they don't travel far. They fall off uh, due to gravity, and they can be uh, easily blocked by a conventional face mask. But the smaller ones, the smaller aerosols that are around one micron and below, those can sustain in air for long periods of time and even travel long distance, especially when you have an indoor environment. And those are the troublesome ones. Another important factor is uh, relevant to air pollution, uh, like the smog, like the forest fire. A vast majority of the particulates in the air pollutant are below 300 nanometer. They are called long penetrating particles because they can go deep into the respiratory system and pose the most health risks. And so those, that is the size range we are targeting uh, our filtration materials for. And this is also the size range that is the most difficult to filter. Uh, the conventional mechanisms are least effective, particularly in 0.1 to 0.4 micron size range. Uh, so typically for the filtration standard, uh, people use 0.3 micron. And so for example, N95 is at least 95% efficient for filtering 0.3 micron uh, particles. So we've developed this uh, foam material uh, that are efficient and uh, robust, uh, breathable, and we can actually clean them easily by rinsing them in water. And this is one important factor. Uh, the current N95 masks use uh, electrostatics to achieve the efficiency. And that goes down uh, when the electrostatics uh, discharge, and eventually the efficiency drops below something like 60% uh, when it's all gone. Uh, that makes it difficult to decontaminate and clean uh, the N95 masks. Also, N95 masks are typically made of polymer-based fabrics, and they have generated tremendous uh, environmental challenge during the pandemic, just from the sheer size of the waste masks. And our metal foams, uh, we can easily clean them uh, and reuse them. And at the end of their useful lifetime, they can be reclaimed or recycled. Uh, so from that, those regards, uh, it's also a very attractive material. So it sounds like a great thing. I, I'm not very happy with the masks I've, I've been wearing through the pandemic. They're not very comfortable. They're not very breathable. They're definitely not recyclable. Uh, but unfortunately, you can't actually buy one of your masks yet. That's um, right. <laughs> but you have just taken a big step towards that. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So 
uh, we published our initial feasibility study on this metal foams uh, in nano letters back in March. And right after that, we saw a challenge uh, on CNN. Uh, I myself saw it on CNN. Uh, Barda and NIOSH uh, had a mask innovation challenge. Uh, this is a biomedical uh, advanced research and development authority and National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Uh, they're both part of the U.S. Department of uh, Health and Human Services. And they opened up a challenge uh, to make tomorrow's mask. And as you just mentioned, uh, we all had our frustrations with the masks. And this challenge is basically try to make it better. Uh, try to develop a better mask uh, design, materials, technology, so that it's more acceptable to the people wearing them, uh, and uh, quantify the uh, performance. So what's that? I, th I understand you were up against a lot of, of different um, comp competing designs here. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Uh, so it turned out there were about 1,500 submissions. We were one of them. Uh, and honestly, we were not thinking about winning anything. We just figured, uh, why not bring our ideas out? Uh, learn from the mask making community and see uh, where we might fit, how we could contribute. And that was our motivation. And I believe this is probably uh, on the most of our participants' uh, mindset. And I mean, just from the, the size of this uh, pool, uh, I think this level of a uh, grassroots participation, that, that's already a big success for the challenge. Doesn't mm. matter the final outcome. And really kudos to all the participants for uh, improving the mask technology and also to uh, Barra and Anayosh for organizing it. So uh, so you, I think you're, you're one of 10 competitors to get through and the only one that comes from a university. That's right. Yeah, we feel uh, very lucky. Uh, so there was a intermediate stage uh, where the pool was narrowed to 40 semifinalists. Uh, at that point, we have to present our design to regional panels, consist of uh, experts from technical and the business side. And then from that 40 semifinalists, uh, they selected 10 phase one winners. Uh, we're very fortunate to be one of them. And there will be a phase two, uh, which I understand right now is uh, still in the planning stage. That's what my next question, you know, what's the next step for, for the contest? So phase one so far was based on designs. Phase two will be proof of a concept. Uh, I understand Barra is still uh, planning the details for this phase two. It's likely going to be rolled out in the fall. Right now they have a, a open a forum for soliciting inputs. Uh, there are information posted on their website uh, and there will be sessions that they are organizing to solicit public input to organize this. Uh, for us, uh, we are just pushing forward on our own timeline, uh, try to advance this uh, technology. Uh, there are so many things to do. Uh, for us on the fundamental side, we want to uh, keep improving this. And so besides the properties and the characteristic I just mentioned, our masks actually can do so much more. Uh, we like to think of them as uh, nanoscale transformers. They are smart. They can do more than just filtering. Uh, there are other mechanisms that can help to filter and clean air. 
for example, uh, we've made a copper foams. Copper has very well-known antimicrobial properties, so it will help to kill the trapped viruses and bacteria. Copper is also a known catalyst. It can break down, for example, carbon monoxide. Uh, so we can use the catalyst angle to not only filter particulates, but also clean air. Uh, think about forest fire. Uh, you want to mm. do both. Uh, and also, uh, we want to uh, adjust the mechanical properties of the foams to specific target applications. And the materials are not only good for uh, masks and the respirators, they could also be useful for household and vehicle uh, air cleaners, for example. And so we're exploring those uh, uh, fundamental angles. And then on the practical side, we are developing prototypes. Uh, so far, we have made uh, centimeter-sized foams. They are very light. Uh, our vice provost uh, call them light as a feather. And, and if we do have a picture of a feather supporting a centimeter-sized foam, and the same foam can support a weight that's over 20,000 times heavier. We want to make them into even bigger sizes so that they can be used as inserts and cartridges, for example, into respirators or masks. Uh, we are also uh, seeking partnership with uh, other mask manufacturers to explore the possibility of using our foam into their designs. And so we've been very busy doing experiments in the lab and also writing proposals, try to get additional support. When you first started getting interested in this, this kind of area, these materials, did you ever think that it would have such like global crisis level practical applications? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so this project uh, was actually very interesting for us. Uh, our main research interest is in nanomagnetism and spintronics. And when we started to look into this type of uh, lightweight uh, metallic structure back in 2010, this was a one-off project. It was just a very cool material science at the time. And then as we made more and more progress, I mean, it just keeps fascinating. It was very fascinating. And uh, we just, hey, we can do this, we can do that. And once the opportunity presented itself, we figured we really should try to do something about air pollution uh, with the gift from uh, Tom and Ginny uh, Cahill. Uh, and Tom was uh, my inspiration. Uh, he had uh, two very successful careers in physics and in environmental science. And he showed me uh, not only we should care, but we, we actually could do something about environmental problem. And so that's how we got started. And uh, we are seeing more and more opportunities try to make a real impact. Kyle Liu, thank you for the coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Margaret. It's my pleasure. Big science facilities, such as the UK's Diamond Synchrotron Light Source, are wonders of engineering prowess. But more importantly, they serve a broad range of users that can include physicists, chemists, biologists, and material scientists. But how do these national and international facilities get built in the first place? Who comes up with the idea for a new facility? And how do they convince governments to cover what can be a considerable price tag? 
To find out, I'm joined down the line by the physicists Adam Carander at the University of Edinburgh and John Morangus at Imperial College London, who are backing a proposal to build the first X-ray free electron laser in the UK. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amy. Hi. So, f- first things first, what, what is an X-ray free electron laser, or XFAL, and, and what kind of science can be done at such a facility? That's a great question. So, an XFAL is basically a linear electron accelerator uh, that then generates light via a process called self-amplified uh, spontaneous emission, or SASE for, for short. So, as a technology, it's a beautiful piece of kit, and as a technology, it straddles uh, lasers and synchrotrons, which, of course, both have been incredibly influential technologies for the last you know, few decades in, in science. And so it, what the next world does, it really takes the, the, the characteristics of both of these technologies and raises them to the, to the nth degree. So it produces light that's highly tunable, and really the range of energy is from, from a few electron, 100 electron volts up to many KEV, and it produces the light in a, in a coherent fashion in extremely short pulses, so sub-femtosecond uh, sub pulses, so atosecond level pulses are quite possible, and uh, they are very bright, so there are many, many orders of magnitude brighter than a synchrotron, and so, so these unique properties open the, the door for a lot of new uh, physics and chemistry and biology, so, so whenever you want to study the structural changes uh, in, in matter, even down to the electron level. Uh, so that opens the door for chemical dynamics with implications for, for catalysis, energy materials, energy devices. Uh, you can also look at, at thermodynamic states and, and so really covering all of, of soft matter uh, science, uh, quantum materials, nanomaterials, magnetism. Uh, we already mentioned life sciences and looking at, at the function of enzymes or the structural biology. It ranges also beyond that, so, so into industry, looking at, at shock materials, nucleation processes, and, and crystallization, uh, pharma, of course, and materials for the nuclear industry. And, and what I find intriguing that, that, of course, everything I'm speaking about now is, is basically properties of matter that you can probe better than, than ever before. But, but in fact, it's, it goes beyond that. And, and you can also look at things such as physics of, 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 uh, beyond the standard model. Um, in science. So, so it really has an enormous scope of, of science that it covers. Uh, yeah, and I might add uh, another area that maybe uh, Adam didn't uh, focus on is the possibility to look at extreme states of matter. And, uh, and I think I'm thinking here of states of matter that only exist in the interiors of stars or the interiors of giant planets, where you can use a laser to drive matter to very high energy density and then probe it with these brief x-rays and the point is that matter only only exists in that state for a very brief time nanoseconds or so so you really need a very very short pulse in order to uh interrogate its properties and and that has been i i think for the uk one of the big uh, scientific areas uh, where there's been significant impact already. And, and there's already um, several XFALs um, in use around the world. And, and in 2018, the UK became a member of the European XFAL, which operates in Hamburg, Germany. So, so given that membership, why does the UK need its own facility? That's a very good question. Um, 
first of all, each of the X files that exist has somewhat different characteristics. So I, I use, for instance, mostly the one in Stanford, the LCLS machine, which was the first one to switch on just over 10 years ago. And I use it because it gives me sub femtosecond pulses. I'm interested in really, really fast electronic dynamics, and that's the way I can measure it. So for the moment, I can't really use European XFEL, although I have uh, plans to use it in the near future as it starts to move in that direction. And there's a great community of UK users of European XFEL already. Um, the, the UK community using FELs has grown really rapidly. In the last decade, it's grown essentially from zero to about 500 scientists who've actively, in some form or another, used XFELs in their research. So this is already a big growth story. Um, but European XFEL in particular, UK has, has bought into. We, we're, we're members of the club, and that's really important. And I and fully expect that to go on uh, into the future, even after we go ahead and build our own machine or we build a next generation machine somewhere else. And the reason for that is because just because there's a new machine, it doesn't mean the old one is entirely obsolete. And, and indeed, European Hexfeld is going to be very far from obsolete in 10 years' time. It will have some unique characteristics and capabilities. And it's exactly the same with synchrotrons. If you look at synchrotrons, there's this, this network of synchrotrons around the world that users move between in order to get the best possible facility for their particular science experiment. And, the, uh, and a given user may go to one place uh, and then another place uh, just to optimize the way they do their science. So, for instance, after Diamond was built, UK remained a member of the European synchrotron in, 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 in Grenoble. So uh, it's, it's not unusual uh, to continue those relationships. And in fact, we, if we, if we were to build a, a next generation XFEL in the UK, we would expect to be fully internationalized. So we would be a place where international users came. And at the same time, we would still go to these other facilities elsewhere in order to use unique capabilities that have been developed uh, in one or other of those. And so I think that's, that's, that's how the relationship would go forward. But what we have as our vision is a next generation XFEL. So, so an XFEL that does some things that are not currently done by any of the XFELs that exist. And, and that, that, the, the sort of areas that we're looking at are the possibility to bring two X-ray pulses of completely different photon energy range together into an experiment. The possibility to, to, to generate beyond the standard SASE operation really truly transform limited pulses with very high spectral purity or very, very short pulse duration. And, and then also the possibility to have synchronized with those X-rays the full range of the electromagnetic spectrum. So at the moment, the pump lasers that are available at existing FELs are quite limited in the uh, wavelength ranges that they operate. Well, I, I think there's no reason why in the future we can't go for a much more ambitious spread of laser-based linear and nonlinear optical sources that stretch all the way from the XUV all the way up to the uh, mid-infrared. And then also to have uh, terahertz sources, dedicated terahertz sources. Terahertz are really important in this science because that can excite the, the phonon modes or the vibrational modes in molecules that you then interrogate the structural dynamics from using the X-ray. And, and, and in fact, we have within our, our plan uh, the possibility also of a relativistic electron beam driven by uh, a laser that's synchronized uh, to, to, to the X-rays as, as an additional way to to drive the matter and then interrogate its properties. So there are, there are many, um, let's say, new possibilities that can be put together 
to have a, a next generation XFL that goes beyond anything that currently exists. Now, that's not to say that there aren't plans at uh, LCLS and European XFL to develop some of those capabilities. And, and, and we've been in discussion with the directors of both those major facilities in, in the last uh, few months. And, uh, and what's interesting is what we were told uh, from the director of European Expel is that our considerations about the future science and the future, what would sit in a in a future um, next generation Expel is, is significantly advanced from, from their um, process to, to distill down what they want to do next. So there's a very high chance that all three of us will go forward and build some new capabilities. But those capabilities needn't necessarily uh, be competing, but they could actually be very much complementary to each other. There's also the possibility that having designed a lot of um, conceptual designs that, that which could be used as the basis for a national machine, we could e- even end up exporting that expertise and building some, if not all of it, at another facility. So I think, you know, it, you, you've got to see these sorts of big science projects in an international context, uh, both because the budgets are large and because they're very much um, collaborative, international collaborative projects in, in, in the end. So, um, you know, we, we don't yet have a map as to how we're going to do this. What we're asking for for a ne- the next phase of the project is to do uh, a sort of essentially conceptual design and an options analysis so we can start analysing further where the synergies might be with other facilities and also what the unique features that we could deliver using the expertise in the UK in accelerator science and, and laser science, uh, where that would really give maximum impact. Wow, that sounds like a really um, impressive facility. So so what would, um, could, could you give us a sketch of what um, the UK XFEL might look like? How long would the electron accelerator be? How many beam lines and, and experiments would, would it support? We haven't yet done what's called a conceptual design. So in other words, we haven't um, uh, identified the technical solutions all the way through from one end to the other end of the facility. Although we have already done um, a number of potential concept outline designs, and they all have some features in common. So let me tell you, you know, broadly speaking, how this would look. You need a relatively long electron accelerator. That's the, that's the thing that drives drives the x-rays so you need a relativistic electron uh, beam uh, as adam explained earlier to get enough energy it typically has to be quite a long accelerator structure on the order of 500 meters maybe up to a kilometer depending on what energy you want to target Um, and then you need uh, additional uh, devices these undulators that allow you to generate the x-rays from those and and we would certainly want to be ambitious We'd want to build a superconducting accelerator to allow a very high repetition rate. So instead of you know, the conventional machines, the normal conducting machines that run at the moment have a repetition rate of about uh, 100 hertz, we want to go more to the 100 kilohertz level um, and, and, and also drive multiple undulators so we can have simultaneously different colors of X-rays being produced, even feeding simultaneously a number of different experiments. So at the end of each undulator, you could conceive of having five to 10 end stations where you basically decide uh, on a given electron pulse where you send the electrons to which undulator and then where you send the X-rays that are generated from those undulators to. So you can imagine a degree of multiplexing, which I think is another feature 
of a next generation machine. Upton, you know, the first generation machine, there was really basically one accelerator, one undulator, and one experiment at a time. And typically, because we were learning how to do science with these things, each experiment took like a week. So you imagine a relatively small rate of science being done compared, say, to a synchrotron where you have multiple end stations all around the ring working 24-7 and you're doing many, many bits of science at the same time. Now, it must be said, the expel science that's come out has, in general, been very high impact. So it's certainly been, been, been high, exceptionally high quality science. But we would like to be able to do more of it. So this idea of multiplexing uh, is, is going to be uh, uh, part of the plan. So, so basically, you're thinking about a facility that's about a kilometre long um, probably built just below ground level. We don't particularly want to go for a deep tunnel because it makes for engineering problems to build the end stations. So probably some sort of um, covered accelerator structure under a big embankment like they've done in Switzerland, which is is is, is rather nice. They've even they've even left places for the local wildlife to go over the accelerator so they didn't disrupt too much the deers and the and the, and the rabbits that live in the forest where they built it. So. Um, I, I, I think that's sort of what we have in mind. But it will be a large-scale uh, uh, facility. So, so, Adam, where are you in, in the process of, of planning uh, the UK XFAL? So this is a very ambitious undertaking, and uh, it has to be done right. So over the last 18 months, there's been a, a broad assessment by, by a large team of scientists of how a facility such as this could benefit science and technology in this country and internationally. And uh, this has resulted in, in the science case, which now has been reviewed very carefully by international panel of, of experts. And I think it demonstrates the, the benefits of this very convincingly. So now we need to take the project to the next stage, which means uh, thinking about technical solutions, uh, specific designs, uh, options analysis, uh, in, in order to really proceed with this development in a systematic way to reach a business case and so forth. And so how long will this this particular phase uh, last? And, and when ultimately could the facility be built and switched on? Maybe I, I should answer that question. Um, the, the next phase um, will last between two and three years. Um, and it will require some pretty intensive work by... Uh, some of the country's top accelerator scientists and, and, and people involved in lasers and photon systems. After that, if we get the green light, uh, then we would go into what's called a technical design phase where the full details of the facility are planned and worked out. That will typically take another two years and result in a, an even heftier volume of material, which um, would be essentially the blueprint for the build. And then uh, construction can start. I mean, obviously, before that, a site selection will have taken place. Site preparation can take place while the technical design is being prepared. Um, and then construction, uh, which can take, I think, in, you know, multiple years, uh, I, I, would, I would say. And then commissioning and then first light. And I think from now until first light, if everything goes smoothly, it's going to be something like 10 years. That, that would be consistent with the timescales uh, of the build of some of the other machines of the European XFEL and of LCLS. Uh, the Swiss fell was, was, was faster than that, but uh, it was perhaps not quite so um, uh, a large-scale enterprise, and I think quite a lot of preparatory work was done beforehand. 
So yeah, we're looking at about a decade from from here until first light. You sort of touched on location. Would this would it be located at a, a you know a national lab like like Daresbury or or Harwell, or could this be something that could be built uh, at a university? Um, because of the size, the scale of the of the machine, it, it's probably not going to be easy to locate it near the average university. Uh, you probably need to buy a site or or, or, or commandeer a site. Um, in the in but but in principle, yes, it can be built in many locations in the country. It could also be built at one of the existing uh, SDFC infrastructures, uh, but it doesn't have to be. And and I think you know, as as we know, the government's current agenda and leveling up might well drive it um, to be built away from uh, an existing centre of, of, of science and technology to, to actually become a new regional centre, which I think could be a very, uh, very good thing. So that, that sounds like a really interesting project, John and Adam. Thanks. Thanks for coming on to the podcast to talk about it. And I'm really looking forward to the grand opening of the UK XFAL. Thank you, Hamish. We can't wait. <laughs> Thank you for having us. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Tammy Freeman, Margaret Harris, Kai Liu, Adam Kirander, and John Morangus for joining me today. And a special thanks, as ever, to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. It features an interview with the physicist and award-winning author, Carlo Rivelli. He talks about Helgoland, his latest book about the origins of quantum mechanics. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website and also at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.